now, brothers and sisters, over the past three weeks, we have been discussing the Abrahamic covenant. And it is what we will be discussing today, possibly for the last time, depending on um, the things that I studied this this week coming. The last time that we gathered on the Lord's Day, we essentially compared and contrasted the covenantal signs of baptism and circumcision, or to say it in their order, circumcision and baptism. Our goal was to ask the question, is there any connection between circumcision of the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament? And we did this by asking questions concerning each of those covenantal signs. We asked, what did they signify? Uh, Meaning this, what did uh, circumcision signify? What did baptism signify? What were the blessings? Or, Or who was to receive circumcision? Who was to receive baptism? And what blessings were given to the one who received circumcision and what bliss blessings were given are given to the one who receives. Uh, did I say baptism? Circumcision, circumcision, baptism. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I was distracted. Sorry. We learned that in the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant of circumcision, that's what it's actually called. The sign of circumcision signified at Abraham believed the Lord that he acted in obedience to the command of God. And, and I didn't harp on this last week. I should have done a better job of this. But it also signified that God would save Gentiles by faith. That's huge. Uh, that's probably the biggest one. Circumcised, circumcision signified that God would save Gentiles by faith. What does that mean? That simply means this. That Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. And God pointed through that circumcision... That all who believed in faith like Abraham would be saved like Abraham. Circumcision did not save anyone. It simply did point to the fact that those who believed in the God of Abraham and the seed that would come from Abraham would be saved. I should have done a better job preaching that last week, but let's move forward. Uh, This was first and foremost a sign to Abraham. Circumcision was first applied to Abraham as an act of obedience in the covenant God made with him. This is all recap. He was then to administer that sign to every male in his household as young as eight days old. Because of his obedience to the command of God, Abraham received the promises of offspring and land that God had given him. God promised what to Abraham? Offspring and land, right? This reward was to Abraham first, and his offspring would reap the benefits of This covenant made with Abraham because of Abraham's obedience. He's the covenant head. He represents a particular people, but he is the one first and foremost whom the blessings belong to those who come from him. They reap the benefits of what was given to Abraham, but it's given to Abraham. All right. We then contrasted the covenant of circumcision with listen, listen to how I say this, a new covenant sign. A new covenant sign, baptism. Is baptism a sign of the new covenant? Yes, but we must explain what we mean by that. Amen? Baptism signified that those who professed faith in Christ have been united with him in his life, in his death, and resurrection. That's what baptism signifies. Only those who have heard the message of the gospel, you've heard, repented, and professed faith in Christ, are the only proper recipients of baptism as our confession states. The only ones who uh, should receive baptism are those who have heard the gospel, repented and believed. That's a a compound thing. Repented and believed. And they have uh, accepted Christ, really. Uh, Accepted Christ. It's a bad thing to say. They believe in Christ, right? They believe in Christ. They are acknowledging that they are identifying themselves with Christ through baptism. Those are the only ones who are the proper recipients of baptism. Baptism in and of itself carries no spiritual blessing. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you receive anything. If you don't believe in Christ, if you haven't repented of sins and you're baptized, you simply took a quick bath. It does nothing for you. And I say that even to my own shame. 
because in times of my ignorance, I simply baptize people. You want to be baptized? Great. Let's get baptized. Without them ever making a true, credible confession of faith or without me ever seeing any fruit coming out of their lives. I can remember baptizing people and then never seeing them again. Now, do we sometimes baptize people who make professions, but they're not true for professions of faith? Yes, we do. But we do we do so out of trust that what they're saying is hopefully what they believe? Yeah. Can we read their hearts? No. Only God can do that. So there are times that we make uh, we give baptism to those who really shouldn't receive baptism, but we're not aware of that. We only offer baptism to those who have made a profession of faith. If someone doesn't make a profession of faith, should we baptize them? No, we're going to talk more about that this morning. But for those who have professed faith in Christ, for those who have repented and trusted in Christ, baptism is a great blessing. Why? Because the person who is baptized is following the pattern of Christ. Christ was baptized, therefore we are baptized. And also, they are following the command of Christ. Christ has commanded that we be baptized. And therefore, when we obey that command, there is a blessing in obedience. Do you know that when you obey the commands of God, you're blessed? You're blessed. You may say, well, I don't feel blessed. I don't look like I'm blessed. You're blessed. When you obey the commands of God, you are blessed because you are doing what God has commanded you to do. There's a blessing simply in that. God is pleased, if you will, with those who obey his commands. uh, Baptism is also a blessing because it is a means of grace. I'm going to say this word. It is a visible word. It's something that we can see, and through seeing it, it visibly preaches the gospel to us. And through that visible word of baptism, the people who receive baptism and also those who are seeing and witnessing baptism are strengthened because we are reminded of our union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. How many of you have been baptized in this place? Praise God. How many of you were encouraged on the day of your baptism? Hopefully we would. Okay. How many of you are just as encouraged and then reminded of your union with Christ when you see another person being baptized? Yes, you love it. You're reminded of, I remember the day when I was uh, through a physical sign reminded of my union with Christ. And then you see another baptized and you are reminded of that wonderful day that you were baptized. So there is a blessing there. At the end of our time last week... I do pray that we successfully display that there is absolutely no connection between the covenantal sign of circumcision and the covenantal sign of baptism. I hope that at the end of our time, we were able to contrast the two and say absolutely no connection. Now, with that said, I know there is also a number of lingering questions and even more arguments that I've not addressed. And let me say that today, I'm not going to be able to address them all either. But today, with the Lord's help, it is our task to attempt to address just a few more of the many issues that we Baptists have against the paedo-Baptist position. I haven't really used that word a lot lately, um, but I will say it a lot today. Today, we are going to present a case that we have as Baptists against the paedo-Baptist position. Uh, Paedo-Baptist, P-E-D-O, Baptist, is the term... For those brothers and sisters, godly brothers and sisters, who believe that the children of believing parents must be baptized according to their understanding of Scripture. Let me say this again. These are godly men and women who love the Lord. We are in no way, shape, or form saying that these people who baptize their children are not believers at all. Uh, We love them. We respect them. Uh, Our confession is adapted, really. Uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so we have uh, much in common with these, our brothers and sisters. But we do disagree on this point. And let me say this. If we ignored the fact that there is a a disagreement and it is a sharp disagreement, then we're not being honest with ourselves. And we're also not being faithful to what we believe the Bible teaches. To say it's not a big deal is to be dishonest. And it's also to say what the Bible commands doesn't matter. It does matter. And that's why we're taking our time with these uh, last three sermons, because it does matter. Here's why it matters. They believe, the Pado-Baptists believe, that it is a sin. 
if the believing parents don't baptize their children. They believe you are in sin by disobeying a command to not baptize your children or to baptize your child. We would be on the opposite side and say, we believe it's a sin if you do baptize your child because God has not commanded it. So one is saying, we believe it's a sin because God has commanded it. We on the other side are saying, we believe it's a sin because God has not commanded it. This morning, we will try our best to uh, present the position of why it is a sin and why baptism should not be offered to those who cannot make a credible profession of faith. It's a big deal. Uh, I'm going to say this again later on in the sermon because I wrote it in my notes. We We should also not be applauding those who baptize their children. I'll say that again and make a very long pause on purpose so that it can seek in. We should not be applauding, amening, great job, awesome, to those who are baptizing their children if you believe that only believers should be baptized. Today, today's sermon will be much like uh, the sermon from last week in which we will be presenting a more polemical sermon that is a more argumentative sermon. And we shall discuss that with six points. Now, six sounds like a lot, especially after Thanksgiving, but... Uh, Trust me, the first point is the longest. From there on, we will move pretty quickly. In this sermon, I will be using two covenants interchangeably because they are the same covenant. So I'm going to be using the word uh, covenant of grace and new covenant interchangeably because they are essentially the same covenant. Okay, so if you hear me say covenant of grace or if you hear me say uh, new covenant, I mean the same thing. Okay, all right. Number one. Long point, but get ready for it. Our long title for our first point. The Abrahamic covenant or covenant of circumcision, as it is called in the book of Acts. The Abrahamic covenant or the covenant of circumcision is not the covenant of grace or the new covenant. Okay? I'll say it again. The Abrahamic covenant or as it is called in the book of Acts, the covenant of circumcision is not the covenant of grace. Or the new covenant. Because I'm using those words interchangeably. Correct? Now. You should be asking. Why are we making this a point? I believe that this is an important point to begin with. Because. This point. That I've just made. Is what the Paedobaptist believes. What? The Abrahamic covenant. Is the covenant of grace. And it is their strongest argument for infant baptism, which is why we're dealing with with it first. The Paedobaptist believes that the Abrahamic covenant that we have been talking about over the past few weeks is the same as the new covenant. Now, in order for us to say, well, that's ridiculous, that's impossible, we must first answer or discuss what is the new covenant? What is the new covenant or covenant of grace? What is it? The covenant of grace, and here it is, it is that promise, that's a big word I just gave, promise, given after the fall of man in Genesis 3.15, where God promised in Genesis 3.15 that a seed would come from the woman. You all know this, don't you? Crush the head of the serpent. We've heard this a hundred times. That promise, listen to this, now listen to this other word I use. That promise was not inaugurated. In Genesis 3.15. But it was promised. In Genesis 3.15. Did you see the difference that I made there? So at one point I said there's a promise. The Pado Baptist believes. No it's not a promise. It's an inauguration. So what's the difference between. A promise and inauguration. Well. Promise is something that will come. Inauguration is something that has come. In our narrow road class last week, we discussed how uh, our newly elected president, when they are newly elected, uh, they have been given the seat of the presidency as a promise in November. But that incoming president does not receive or is not inaugurated as the new president until January. Until January... The president before him is still sitting in the office. He hasn't left. 
He still has all of his pictures of all of his babies and whatever else still in the, in the, in the White House. It isn't until January that all of those things are gone and then the new president comes. He's inaugurated. This is similar, not the same, but similar to what we mean by the covenant of grace being promised, but not inaugurated in the garden. And why wasn't the promise, listen to this, why wasn't the promise inaugurated in the garden? It's a really simple, really simple answer. Why wasn't the promise inaugurated in the garden? The seed hadn't come yet. It can't be inaugurated if it's, if God is saying, I promise a seed will come. And the seed's not there. Those who are, uh, hearing this promise are believing that the seed will come therefore they are saved but he has not yet come therefore the covenant has not yet been inaugurated from adam to john the baptist they all believed and they all looked forward to the coming of that seed then on that glorious day john the baptist and john 129 said look behold the lamb of god who takes away the son the, the sin of the world the eternal son became flesh and dwelt among his creation. This is all the covenant of grace. He lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. He actively obeyed the righteous law of God, right? He then passively laid down his life for sinners at the cross of Calvary. Now listen to this, because here's where it becomes inaugurated. Christ then inaugurated the new covenant. How so? Listen to this. How are covenants ratified uh made uh complete how's a covenant made complete with what blood that's right little one back there blood a covenant is made right complete with blood so if the covenant of grace began inaugurated in the garden where is the blood? From the seed. Who would come? It can't be inaugurated. It's only a promise. On that glorious day, the Lord Jesus Christ inaugurated the new covenant of grace, the new covenant, grace, right? In his blood at the cross of Calvary. He sealed the covenant in his blood, the blood of our Christ. And the covenant of grace was made complete. How do we know it was made complete? What does he say on the cross? In John 1930. It is finished. Right? This is a new covenant. It is the promise that God made that he would uh, take the heart of stone from those his people and give to them a heart of flesh. It is that promise that he would give the Holy Spirit as a sign and seal of our salvation. And those who live before Christ trusted that his blood would save them from their sins. They uh, were looking forward to the one to come and they believed and they were saved. Those who saw him were blessed uh, with their eyes to see him and they stood in awe and they were saved. And we now today, we look back and we presently rejoice at what Christ did. And we also look forward to the fact that he will also now return and take us into glory for eternity. The same rest that he earned for us when he entered his rest. They look forward. We, we look back and we also look forward. The covenant of grace. That's what it is. Much more could be said about that. And listen, to many of the things that I've just said, the Pado Baptists would heartily, heartily agree and say amen to many of the things. But here's where they would disagree. They would disagree in saying, but you guys only believe that the new covenant is found in the New Testament, they would disagree and say, you guys only believe that the covenant of grace is only found in the New Testament. We believe that it happened right there in the garden. So when someone says the differences that we have between Pado Baptist and Baptist, they begin at the Abrahamic covenant. No, they begin in the garden. That's where we start to go in different directions. They believe that Genesis 3.15, again, not the promise, but the actual inauguration of the new covenant. They believe that the covenants that came after Abraham or after Adam 
are all one covenant of grace. So, so far we have learned in this church about the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and now the Abrahamic covenant. After this is the Mosaic and the Davidic. They believe that all of those are the one covenant of grace. They would say that there are just two covenants. Covenant of works made with Adam, and then everything else after that is the covenant of grace. They would say that the covenant of grace is one covenant. This is important. One covenant under various or different administrations. But their covenant or but their substance is the same. The substance is Christ, they say. So let me see if I can simplify this more. So then the Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, uh, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic and Davidic covenants, they're not separate. But one. And covenant of grace, because they believe that all of those covenants. They offered Christ. They would call Christ the substance. Or grace. Therefore, those are all the covenant of grace that you guys follow that. If you didn't, I'll simplify it more if I can. Adam covenant of works, everything else covenant of grace, because Christ is offered in each of them. That's what they believe. This comes from their confession, Westminster Confession 7-6. Listen to this. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So dispensation just means periods of time. That is, the covenant of grace was made with different men, nation, over periods of time, but Christ is the same substance of every single covenant. Does that make sense? I hope so. And if not, come and talk to us afterwards. The Pedobaptist believes that the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of grace are both the same covenant, just under different expressions, different administrations. It's very different from our position, which states that the Abrahamic covenant is not the new covenant of grace. It's not the new covenant. Why? Why, why is the Abrahamic covenant? Why can it not be a covenant or even the covenant of grace? But why not even a covenant of grace? Why not? Come on, we're talking. Why not? Why not? What? Why can't it not be not only the, but also a covenant of grace? Why not? Think of the word grace. What does grace mean? Unmerited. Right? Did Abraham have to do nothing in his covenant with God? No. Thank you, son. No. He had things to do. What did he have to do? Remember, leave his country and kindred, walk before God, be blameless, be circumcised and circumcise his house, ultimately offer up his son work. Abraham was commanded to work, right? So this can't be not only the covenant of grace, but a covenant of grace because work was required of Abraham where there is no work. It's grace. But if there is work, it can't be grace because grace means no work. So how does the Pado Baptist argue that there is this is a covenant of grace or the covenant of grace when there's no grace here? It's a lot of work, right? We believe that there is one redemptive string. There is one promise of grace that governs redemptive history. But it's not that all these covenants are just one. We do not see one covenant marked by multiple administrations. The Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants are not the one covenant of grace under different administrations and carrying the same substance of Christ. They are not. Listen, they give us insight into what Christ shall accomplish. But they themselves do not offer Christ because each of them requires work. And where there is work, there is no grace. In the new covenant, there is work. But it is work accomplished not by you and not by me, but by Christ. And it is in his finished work that we trust. Therefore, we are saved by faith alone in Christ's finished work. And it is by grace that we are saved. Now, 
this may be technical for just a moment. And remember, this first point's our longest. But it's vital for our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. I, I discussed this, this this morning in the narrow road. There is a twofold distinction in God's covenantal dealings with Abraham. Meaning this, there's two sides to this covenant made with Abraham. You may even see it, as we talked about it this morning, you may even see it, see it as there's two Abrahams. There's begetting Abraham, a father, and there's believing Abraham, a spiritual father. There is a salvific layer or tear, and then there is a physical layer or tear in this covenant with Abraham. Uh, again, there is begetting Abraham and there is believing Abraham. But listen, we can't mingle the two and say it's just one person. We have to see them distinguished as two. Why? Because one, Abraham, he is the person, but he is giving birth to a physical national Israel. And then there is another who is giving birth to a spiritual Israel. What does that mean? There are those people who are descendants of Abraham because they actually come from his physical line. They are his stock, his seed, physically. But then there is another seed. It is the seed who comes to Abraham, who was the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the seed that Abraham believed in. The one who would bless the nations. It is that seed that those who trust in, if you trust in Christ, you then become a child of Abraham. How? Here's how you become a child of Abraham. When was Abraham made righteous? Before circumcision or after circumcision? Before. Abraham then becomes the example of how one is made right with God. How is one made right with God? By faith. One is made right with God. One receives righteousness from God by trusting in the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you trust in the righteous one, righteousness is imputed, credited to you and me who are not righteous by birth. We therefore become descendants of Abraham who also receive righteousness by faith. So then there is two Abrahams. There is the physical Abraham and there is the spiritual Abraham. Again, we must not commingle the two. The Pado Baptist only sees one Abraham who is both the believer and the begetter in one. We must see two. The particular Baptist, they understood that there are two realities to Abraham. There is Abraham, the begetter. And his natural seed. And there is Abraham the believer. And his spiritual seed. The symbolism of circumcision refers to an ongoing promise to Abraham. And his descendants. And it counts as a warning to those who do not obey that they will be cut off. But this also points to a greater spiritual reality. That is, again, circumcision of the heart. Remember that? The covenant of, of circumcision made with Abraham. Listen, in, in closing in this first point, it's simply that. It's a covenant of circumcision and no more. It is not the covenant of grace. I hope all of that made sense. If not, please feel free to talk to me afterwards. And I know that when we say talk to us, sometimes we don't know what questions to ask. I want to ask you, but I just don't know what to ask. Just say, hey, that didn't make any sense to me. Can you say it to me again? I'd be happy to do that. Okay. Number two. The hermeneutical problem. Uh, you may or may not have ever heard the word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the theological word that means science or method of interpretation. Hermeneutics simply means the science or method of interpretation. Specifically, we're talking about the Bible. Now, we believe that there are flaws in the Pado baptist approach to hermeneutics, meaning how they interpret the scriptures. The first and most significant issue has to do with faulty assumptions that are made by what is called, now here's your word for you guys, positive law. Positive 
law. You may remember this way back when we were talking about the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, at that particular time, talked about positive law. Now, what does positive law mean? Positive law does not mean good or bad. Positive means added. Positive means added law. It doesn't mean good law, bad law. It means uh, added law. And it is added, therefore it is positive, added to the moral law. What's the moral law? It's that which is written on our heart. It's the law that every single one of us know via being made created in the image of God. So we all know that... uh, Forsaking the Sabbath is a moral law that we should not we should not disobey. We all know that taking the Lord's name in vain is a moral law that we should not all uh, disobey. Uh, we know that uh, worshiping other gods is a moral law that we should not violate. Okay, positive law. What's a positive law? Added law, but let's go deeper than that. It's laws added by God for a specific people. Time and place. Here's an example, okay? Here's an example of a positive law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that a moral law or a positive law? It's a positive law that becomes a moral law. Now, here's how we figure that out. Was the tree evil by itself? No. As far as we can assume, the tree was not like dripping with poison, glowing super red. So that Adam and Eve obviously said, I need to stay away from that one, right? The tree was a tree. And as far as we can gather, it was a good tree until God said, don't eat of it. Then it becomes a sin to eat of the tree because God added a law, which is positive, to not eat from that tree. Now, we're going to pay this off in a moment, so stay with me. Not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not universal. It was a law that God added for Adam. Don't eat of this tree. Now, moral laws, again, are those laws that are universal. Worship one God. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Uh, Don't forsake the Lord's day. uh, Do not murder. Those are moral laws across the world. Everyone knows those laws, the Ten Commandments. They are written on the hearts of every man, and they are true for every man and woman of all time and in all places. Hopefully, you've understood the difference now. We know that a moral law written on your heart, positive law, something God has added. Okay? The Paedobaptists would say that because the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are the same, and we've already made this point, if something is present in the Abrahamic covenant, then it must carry over to the new covenant as well. Now stay with me. They say infants were circumcised under the commandment of God through the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, infants should be baptized in the new new covenant. Stay with me. Because it was true in the Abrahamic covenant, it should be true in the new covenant. Now, there's a problem with this assumption and interpretation. Why? What is it? Within these two covenants, it's impossible to take a positive law from one covenant and apply it to a positive law in the new covenant. Does that make sense? Laws are requirements that are explicit or or either implicit. You can't take implicit or explicit laws from here and place them over here. No one ever commanded explicitly or implicitly Children be baptized. The Pedobaptists would say, you don't understand the covenant. We would say, well, you understand the covenant. So let's get back to this positive law thing. Uh, they are for a specific people, time, and place, right? They would not be known unless God commanded or communicated them. Okay? Positive laws would not be known unless God commanded and communicated or communicated and commanded them to people. Here's your question now. Circumcision. Is it a positive law 
or a moral law? What? I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to the podcast. I'm talking to you today. What is it? Who says positive? Who says moral? Why is it positive? Because God added that. Right? We don't see... It's not... Circumcision is not something written on our hearts. It's something that God added for a specific people, time, and place. Right? Yes. And it's tied to a specific covenant for a specific people, time, and place. Are you with me? You see how that's, how we're seeing, okay, positive laws added. It's for a specific people, time, and place. It's for that covenant. Okay. You know what else is a positive law? Take a guess. What else is a positive law? Since we're, so who said it? Good job, sister. Baptism. Someone's listening. Baptism is also a positive law. It's not written on our hearts. It's not a moral law. It was commanded, it was not commanded before Christ. It was instituted by Christ and then commanded by Christ as a part of the new covenant. Conclusion. What does all this mean, pastor? It is not possible to take a, a positive law from one covenant and try to deduce on, uh, from another covenant how this covenant should be followed. Does that make sense? You can't take something was for a specific people, time, and place and say, this is also for you guys, specific time and place. Because they did it over here positively, then you must also do it over here. Specific covenant for a people, time, and place. Specific covenant for a people, time, and place. You can't make the two one. They don't connect. God is the only one that can determine the requirements of the covenant. We don't have that right. This is true even if you think the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are different administrations of the same covenant of grace. You still can't add laws to one simply because you saw something done back here. Different people, time, and place. This still applies because those positive laws only apply to the covenants with which they were made. Does that make sense? That's a str- This was one of the most important and strongest arguments for our Baptist forefathers, for their argument for believers' baptism. Third point, we're moving quicker now. <clears throat> the New Testament takes priority over the Old Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that the Old Testament is not God's word? Uh, third point is New Testament takes priority over the Old Testament. I'll say it one more time. New Testament takes priority over the Old Testament. What does that mean? Does that mean that, that the Old Testament is not God's word? Uh, listen, if someone ever, ha- ever hands you a New Testament only, you say, hey, where's the rest of the Bible? You forgot a part. Where's the rest of it? It's all God's word. It's all God's word. The Old Testament is not useless. Without the Old Testament, we would not be able to understand the New Testament. And without the New Testament, we would not be able to fully understand the Old Testament. We need them both. Which means, uh, what this means is simply that the Old Testament, it prepares us for the New Testament. The Old Testament prepares us for the New Testament. It anticipates, it points us forward toward Christ, who is presented in various ways in the Old Testament. But when understanding the scriptures in the New Testament, it is not true that we have to look to the Old Testament for light. Does that make sense? Because the greater light is found in the New Testament. We can look to the Old Testament for understanding, but we look to the New Testament for full revelation. Because why? The New Testament explains the Old Testament. And the Old Testament points us forward to the New Testament. The Pado-Baptist method of interpretation ends up giving priority to the Old Testament rather than the New Testament. Well, if you really want to understand baptism of children, you got to understand this. But that's not the case. It is, they are essentially saying greater light is found in the Old Testament and not the New Testament. And that's backwards. The greater light is found in the New Testament. So much language of Scripture is clear that greater revelation is found in the New Testament along with the sending of the Son and the Spirit. What does the Bible say in Hebrews 1? God, after he spoke long ago to the Father, to our fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son. God has given us the final revelation through his Son. 
we have the final and clearest revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. To think that the solution to our understanding of infant baptism is only found in the Old Testament, it really kind of spits on the New Testament. Now, I know I, I say that gently, and I probably didn't say that very gently. I say that understanding a paedobaptist would be very offended by what I just said. But there's no other way around it. Number four. You'll notice in, oh, number four is the everlasting covenant. You'll notice in chapter 17 and verse 7 of Genesis, there's a word that says God describes the covenant as an everlasting covenant. You may have noticed uh, also that there is later a language of everlasting possession. What does everlasting mean? That's the surface reading of it, right? At the surface, you would say, well, looks like forever is forever, which is why they would say this covenant over here and its laws, it applies over here because it's everlasting. It may be very simple to see everlasting is everlasting, but it's a misunderstanding of the language and how the word everlasting is used in covenants. A better way might to might be to describe it as a covenant that will continue after Abraham is gone, but it does not mean that it has no end. Does that make, I'll say it again. It's a covenant that will continue after Abraham is gone, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have an end. It simply means it will continue until it is accomplished. It will continue and how it is accomplished. Now listen, this is recognized on, on both sides of the issue. Uh, from Pado-Baptists like, and I, I, I'm not going to say their names because they're not going to mean anything to you. But on this side of the issue and on our side of the issue, that's a, a united agreement. That everlasting doesn't always mean without end. It means until it's finished. How do we know that? Because there are times when God uses everlasting to describe himself. And there are times when humans in scripture use language like everlasting to describe things in a human sense. Meaning they will continue until it's done. But they don't mean the same thing. Does that make sense? So we'll see everlasting applied to God and then we'll see everlasting applied to something else. And we can't equate the two. Just like God is everlasting, that's going to be everlasting. Doesn't mean the same thing. Okay. This, again, is a biblical point. Uh, so if everlasting means until it's accomplished, when are the physical promises of Abraham given to Abraham? When were they accomplished? Moses. The descendants of Moses inherited the promise, physical promises given to Abraham. When were the spiritual promises of Abraham fulfilled? When were all the nations blessed? At the inauguration of the covenant of grace at the cross. Right now, people were saved until then. The covenant was accomplished at the cross. God has fulfilled his promise. God has kept his side of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 15, 17, don't need to turn there. Some, uh, the Bible says, someone may sell themselves into slavery forever. But it doesn't mean forever. It just means until they're able to pay off their debt or until the year of Jubilee, which comes every 50 years. They were set free. So forever doesn't always mean forever. And I'm sure that people will say, oh, you Calvinists, you know, always doesn't mean always. And world doesn't mean world. Well, kind of the same thing. First Samuel 2.30 means is another point to this. Now, I want to um, I want to say this carefully and I want to say this clearly, though. <clears throat> it's easy for us to make mistakes when we see everlasting covenant. And this is an important note for us to consider, especially when we think about dispensationalism, which has infected our understanding of what and who Israel is. What do I mean by that? If you, before you came to this church, or maybe even now, were to hear about the nation of Israel or Jews in general, you might think, well, they are God's people. We dispute that fact. 
We believe that those who trust in Christ are God's people because there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. Because you are a Jew does not give you any right to anything unless you trust in Christ. Then you are truly the people of God. Now, I'm going to speak spiritually or theologically on this point, not politically. I'll say that again. I'm speaking theologically, not politically. We are told in Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, verse 8, <clears throat> that Canaan would be an everlasting possession of Israel. Many Christians believe that there is a theological reasons why the Jews need to live in the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. They have to have it. It's theirs. God said so. Well, if you understand the covenant, God gave the land to the people and said, this land will be yours as long as you obey me. And what did they do? They continue to chase other gods every single time. And what happened to them? Just like God would, just like God said what happened, they were exiled. They had to serve other nations. They broke that covenant. Therefore, whoever gets that land politically, I'm not speaking spiritually. And now I'm speaking politically. Whoever gets that land gets that land or spiritually. Politically, that's none of my business. But spiritually, they have broken God's covenant. Therefore, that land is to whoever can get it. I don't speak politically, though. Politically, there may be very good reasons. Spiritually, though, speaking according to what the Bible teaches, there is no reason why we should believe that the Jews and Jews alone should live and control Israel. I'm speaking theologically. Because they have broken the covenant with God. As a nation. Everlasting simply does not mean everlasting. And there is no theological reason, listen, why we should ever care theologically if Israel is recognized as the capital or, or, or if, if uh, yeah, if Israel is, Jerusalem is recognized as the capital of Israel or not. Theologically, we should not care. doesn't matter. Just like they don't care what happens here in Bakersfield. <laughs> Politically, that's a whole other story. I have no comment on that. But spiritually, according to the scriptures, there's no reason why when you see Israel attacked, you should say, theologically, that's God's people. We must do something as God's people. And our presidents have made that mistake in the past. We've got to protect Israel. Why? Because they're using a theological point for something politically. We're theologically, they don't understand that Israel's broken covenant with God. So whatever mess they get themselves into, they got themselves into that mess. I am going politically, aren't I? I should stop that. <laughs> if our reasoning is theological, then I say from scripture that we have no theological reason why we should be concerned with protecting the nation, nation national state of Israel. Politically, not my business. Theologically, though, they have broken covenant with God. Everlasting don't mean everlasting. Number five. The so-called family principle. And we're going to move through these last two points very quickly. In Genesis chapter 17, God commanded that Abraham be circumcised and also that he circumcised everyone in his house. The Paedobaptist connects this positive law, remember positive law, and uses the argument that just like Abraham circumcised everyone in his house and all of his family, so the believer... They're taking that positive law. Remember, they're taking the, the commands from the positive law. And so they're saying, so the believer must also baptize everyone in his house, babies included, based upon the faith of the parent. So if the parent believes, the child is baptized. That's what they believe. Those who circumcise their children must have believed God, they say. And that is why they circumcise their children. So again, using the principle of the Abrahamic covenant to argue for the new covenant ordinance of baptism. This reveals, again, a misunderstanding of the way that the Abrahamic covenant worked. Inclusion in the covenant did not depend on the parents. It depended on Abraham. Abraham is the covenant head of the Abrahamic covenant. That is why the child is being, uh, that's why, listen to this, that's why Abraham is being brought up again and again, where? In the New Testament. What, what do the people uh, who are fighting with Jesus, what do they always say? We're children of Abraham. 
if I was living in the time, you never heard them say, I'm Richard's son. These promises are mine. They never even go uh, uh, to their grandfather. I'm Faustino's son. The promises are mine. Who do they reach all the way back to? To the covenant head. To Abraham. And here's what they believe, that because of what Abraham did, they are entitled to both the physical promises and the spiritual promises simply because they were baptized or circumcised. Simply because they were circumcised. Does that make sense? They believe they were entitled to all of the promises. But Jesus makes a distinction and says, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed. Therefore, your circumcision means nothing. So if the Pado Baptist wants to say, I baptize my child because I'm a believer. Well, here's a problem. Who is that child's covenant head? Who represents that child? Does Abraham represent that child? Well, let's let's do this. Even if Abraham represented the child, what did Abraham do? Believed. And you only become a child of Abraham if you believe. Okay. Is the child able to make a profession of faith? No. So then what, who is that child's covenant head based upon his birth? Adam. Adam is that child's covenant head. If Adam is that child's covenant head, then what stance does that child have before God at his birth? He's a sinner in Adam. You can't offer to a sinner in Adam a sign that says you are united to Christ. So for the Pado-Baptist, we have a question. Who is your child's covenant head? Is it Adam or is it Christ? And if it's Christ, then when did they make their credible profession of faith? My son is five and he's been baptizing uh, Luigi and Mario in his water because he longs to be baptized. But we are still working toward helping him understand what it means to be baptized and what the gospel is. And I've said to him, you will be baptized when you understand the gospel and when you understand what it means your baptism. Until then, we'll work on that. Do I believe that the Lord has, has worked faith in his heart? I do. Some of the things that we talk about, because uh, we worship every day together, they could only come from, I think, someone who has been rightly taught and someone who really believes. And he has a conviction. He sees, when he sees wrong and injustice, he responds to it in a right way. But he's not ready to be baptized until he truly understands what it means to be a believer and what it means to understand and know and believe the gospel. And why am I doing that? Because I'm protecting first and foremost the sign that Christ offered to his church to give to those who are true believers and also protecting my son from believing that because he was baptized that something special is now his when he doesn't understand it fully. We must never encourage giving the sign to an unbeliever who is still in Adam until they profess faith in Christ. He is not their God. Uh, can I say again, and don't clap for those who are baptizing their children. Don't amen them. Don't say awesome. Don't say wonderful. If that's the case, then don't call yourself a Baptist. Know what you believe. If you have a conviction about it, then stand on it. If you have no convictions and it doesn't matter, and God doesn't think it all matters, then throw this away and do whatever you want to do. I defy and despise the person who says, doesn't really matter. Then we're saying what God has commanded doesn't really matter. Worship how you want. Ask those who offered strange fire to God how worshiping how they wanted turned out for them. Fell dead before God. We believe that God has given us commands on how we should worship him. 
and how we should live. And we are not to make up our own commands or applaud those who are making up their own commands or violating what we believe God has commanded clearly in his word. Last and not least, inconsistencies. These are just going to be a bunch of questions. If we assume that the elements from the Abrahamic covenant carry over to the new covenant, how do we get to pick and choose what carries over? So if we said circumcision over here is the same as baptism over here, how do we decide what gets to be brought over and what gets to stay? Because the instructions in the Old Testament are clear. When were the males to be circumcised? On the eighth day. Then why don't we baptize children on the eighth day? Or why don't the Pado-Baptists baptize children on the eighth day? Here's another thing. Who was to be circumcised? Males. Why are we baptizing? Why are they baptizing males and females? If it's carrying over from Old Testament to New, wasn't there a clear command? Think of the treatment of Ishmael. He's the first son born to Abraham. He was circumcised. He was not a child of promise, though. But he was circumcised. Abraham had other children, do you know that? Besides uh, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, he also married after Sarai died. Sarah died and had other children. And they were all, assumedly, circumcised. But what happens to all of those children when Abraham is getting ready to die? Even though they were circumcised, Abraham sends them all away. Why? So that there would be no conflict with the blessing that was only going to be given to Isaac. They were all circumcised, but guess what? Their circumcision meant nothing. Baptism also gives no spiritual right to anyone who receives it. Uh, Moving on to maybe another one, and I think it's important. If the covenant of grace is so important, why does God spend so much time talking about land? If the covenant of grace is such an important thing in the Abrahamic covenant, why does God talk about land so much? Why is this covenant of grace, why is it called a covenant of circumcision and not the covenant of grace? Why do we need a new covenant if the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant? And then what's so new about the new covenant then? How is it a better covenant than the old covenant? Because the scripture describes this new covenant as a new and better covenant. How is it any better if it's the same? How about this? They say, well, you guys don't understand the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. There's not one church. There's two churches, they will say. There seems to be a misunderstanding there as well. Because there is... uh, A church from God's infallible perspective, the ones who God knows and can see. And there is a church from man's fallible perspective. But there's not two churches. There's only one church. It's a matter of perspective. We can only see what we can see. But God knows who are his people. And that's the one true church. We cannot devise a, a divided visible person into two people, a visible person and an invisible person. It's erroneous. Uh, matter of fact, Abrocco says that. It's erroneous to think that. Out of all of these things, and I know that there's been a lot of information, and let me just say to you, uh, over the past maybe three or four weeks, I know that in this church you've been getting some heavy information. I understand that. Can I say to you, don't despise heavy information. Be thankful for it. Be thankful that you have men who are working all week and even before that to present to you the best meal they could possibly give. And I know that sometimes it it, it can almost seem like, man, you're shooting way over my head. I can't believe you're doing this to me. We're trying to help you grow in Christ. We really are looking out for your best interest and we're trying to bring it that which we've learned, we're trying to bring it to you at a place where we could say, this is the best I can do to explain it to you. I'll go back and maybe try again and, and bring it to you at another way, in another way. But I really want you to understand this. Not so that you can say, look how much I know, but so you can better know your Christ. You can better understand the covenant that God has made before time in which he had you involved. 
that this all that we're talking about, we're talking about a covenant that God made between the father and son in which the spirit would it would empower the son in his incarnation so that he might save you. And this was before the world began that, that God would have you in mind, that he would save you, that he would think before time. I'm going to save Tony. I'm going to save Doreen. The son will come and do so. You need to be in all of these things, but also. You need to understand how that has all worked out in time. So then in conclusion, what can we say? What can I say very briefly? I hope that you've seen the distinctions. I hope that you've seen the distinction between a paedo-baptist belief and a credo-baptist, which is believers Baptist belief. I also say that we must be humble. We still have much to learn and much to understand. We don't we haven't arrived. And may God help our convictions to grow even more embedded in his word, meaning let our belief be more rooted in what God has said. But also let us be charitable. In those times of discussing these matters with with those who maybe believe differently than us. And yet remain stubborn in our convictions. Listen, if you're not stubborn in your conviction. Maybe you don't really believe it. You got to have to work really hard to convince me because I'm stubborn. But I want someone stubborn. I don't want someone wishy-washy who's going to believe one thing one day and then believe the next thing, something else the next day. No, be stubborn. Be rebellious in your belief. And if someone is able to present to you something biblical, then share it with others. See if maybe you're missing something. But in the process, be humble. Ask the Lord to give you a a spirit of humility and meekness. But also be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Am I talking about myself? Let's pray.